Tucker. You have your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Those of you on the right-hand side of, or the, I guess the left side of the stage left, whatever it is, um, you're going to have to just kind of follow along and do the best you can to get the things that are on the screen. As we've been going through Jonah, I want to remind you again, as I will every week, Jonah is not about Jonah. Jonah is about Israel. Uh, God is using this storyline in the life of Jonah. I believe it's a real story. I believe it's a historical story. But I believe that God is narrating this story and he is writing this story in Jonah's life to confront Israel with his grace. And as we continue to go through the book, one of the things we'll be exploring is what's happening in Israel's existence right now. What are they experiencing? And so in doing that, we can learn what God is confronting in their lives nationally. But he's using Jonah to do that. So as you read the book and you ask, what is God teaching Jonah? You need to expand that question and ask, what is God teaching Israel? So in your Bibles to uh, to chapter 1, and I'm just going to, chapter 1 verses 4 all the way through verse 16 and 17 really is the the main text, but I've broken them up into two sections because I think two different things are happening, okay? And we'll talk about today's, and then I'll end and give you a preview of next week. So this is Jonah 1, verses 4 through 6. I think I have it on the screen. Here you go. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid Uh, You can imagine it takes a lot to make a sailor afraid. Uh, The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, continue to look at your text. I think there's several key things in the text that I want to draw your attention to before we move on. Number one, the Lord hurled a great wind. Okay, that's that's an important thought. The author is very careful to say the wind came directly from God. He is addressing God's sovereignty and God's control. He's saying this wind was not happenstance. God created it. So you need to, you need to highlight that. The ship is personified. The ship was actually threatening. The ship was threatening in the grammar here to break up. Now why is that important? Because it's it's bringing us into characters so that we'll kind of kind of come into a scene and here's the ship just like the sailors the ship is saying I'm about to break up fellas do something I'm not going to hold together much longer because this is this is a, a story and we're meant to be brought into uh, every character that's on the scene here um, the captain's words are important the captain says the same words to Jonah that God did Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it. Notice what the captain says to Jonah, arise, call out. There's no mistaking that this is intentional on the part of the author. So arise, call out is is 
Now God is saying the same thing to Jonah, but instead of God saying it directly, he's saying it through this ship captain, this pagan ship captain who doesn't believe in Jehovah. And then finally, notice how the text says, maybe your God will save us. And it's little g. Because this is the captain speaking. And the captain is spiritually polytheistic. He has many gods, and Jonah's God is just like his God, and and that really becomes a clue into what God is doing in the life of Jonah. So I want to draw your attention to the fact that in this moment, God is graciously confronting the idolatry of his people. God is graciously confronting the idolatry of his people. Now, in the story, God's confronting Jonah's idolatry, but Remember, the story is about Israel. So let's go through the text a little bit. I'll try and and make this case. And then we'll draw some conclusions. The Assyrians, Ninevites, the sailors, and Israel all have something in common. And that is idolatry. The Ninevites worshipped Ishtar, or Iana, she is called, She is called the Queen of Heaven or the Lady of Heaven. She is usually attached to Venus. She is the goddess of justice. She is the goddess of war, sex, and political power. All the raw passions of humanity are found in this fake deity, in this goddess. This is who they worship. She actually kind of rose to to primary status in the Assyrian Empire over other gods as they warred and as they, they did battle and as one became more prominent than the other in the cults and in the in the economy of the situation. Don't think that that worship and economy aren't tied together. They are. And so when one God is worshipped and the thing that's being asked for happens or the blessing comes through this, everyone shifts to that God because that God is giving. He's delivering or she's delivering for that group of people. And so now that deity is going to become more prominent because of the economy of it. We can ask this person and they'll do something for us. We can ask this being and they'll do something for us. This is what's happening in Nineveh, and it explains some of the violence that the the Assyrians were, uh, were perpetrating because they had the goddess of war on their side. And so they they're worshiping this goddess, they're going to war, which is how you worship goddesses of war. You become violent, brutal people. And this is why. Uh, Jonah is so reticent to go there. The Assyrians had been plundering the Israelites. They had been stealing, killing, marauding, uh, invading, retaking territory away from Israel. These were violent people. Because of who they worshipped, they were pagan worshipping this goddess. But the sailors were no different. You see in the text... The sailors are each, and notice the grammar, the grammar is important. They are each crying out to his God. How many sailors on a ship like this, if it's, if it's a smaller vessel, some would argue that Jonah actually, when it says he paid the fare, that he actually bought out the ship. 
that he actually spent a considerable amount of money to be the only passenger on the ship. But you know, ship uh, sailors are businessmen. The captain of the ship is a businessman. He wants to load it up with as much cargo and as many passengers as he can get on it. So the fact that other passengers aren't mentioned and the fact that Jonah is alone in the hull of the ship could suggest that Jonah had bought out the ship and the, the captain had said, well, my, you know, pass, I have 10 passengers I'll take for 1000 bucks. That's $10,000. Jonah said, I'll be the only passenger. So apart from the cargo, Jonah was probably the only passenger. And the, sh- the, the, the waves come and the ship is threatening. I'm about to break up, guys. And the, the sailors are scared. They're throwing their, their cargo over. A great loss of economy. And they're each crying out to their God. Now, that's, that's critical because you have a prophet of God, you have someone who God has spoken to on a ship with a bunch of non-believers. Well, I, would, I shouldn't say that. They're believers, but they're believers in other deities. And so they're each crying out to their God, and what, God is, what the narrative is doing is placing... Jonah doesn't just represent Israel, he represents the God of Israel. So it, the, the, narr- the story is placing Jonah in the midst of paganism. Uh, idols, as, as you know, you're good educated people, idols are all about control. Deities are all about control. Uh, pagan deities of the ancient day were all about controlling the growth of your crops and the uh, growth of your cattle, husbandry, and agriculture. And so you worshipped the god of the earth, the goddess of the earth, the goddess of fertility. You worshipped the god of the sky, who produced the rain and protected you from storms. Uh, you worshipped the goddesses of fertility that that created life among the animals and within your own family, because you got a big, bunch of cattle, you got a big farm, you need a bunch of kids. And so you worshipped the fertility goddesses and gods because you could control them. That's, that's the thing that you're after. You're after protecting your economy and your own wealth by worshipping the, the deities that are in control of that kind of thing. And so you can imagine the sailors, they were, they were worshipping sea goddesses and gods and, and trying to appease the people who were controlling their destiny. The people who were controlling their livelihood, their health, and their, their present and their future. It's, it's like having a patron saint for every career and every area of life. If I pray to this person, they're going to give me something, they're going to protect me, they're going to give me what I need so I can do better in the future. Israel, unfortunately, was no different. From the time of Solomon forward, now, you can go prior to, to the nation in the book of Judges, but then you have Samuel come on the scene, Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. And the, in, during these times of these first few kings, there is Jehovah worship exclusively. And then comes Solomon, and Solomon does the very thing that God warns him not to do. He chases after a number of women. He has 700 wives, 300 concubines, or 300 wives, 700, a lot of women. Okay? Chasing his own, his own pleasure. And he, he marries them. These are largely political marriages, but the idea is to produce political offspring. And the heart of Solomon, the text says, the scripture says, is turned 
towards the gods of these pagan women, these non-believing women that he had married. You can read about this in uh, 1 Kings 11 and 1 Kings uh, chapter 12. So what happens when Solomon dies? Idolatry has already started to infect the land. For each one of his wives, he created a place of, of worship for their gods. And so Israel is now corrupted with with the deities of the the nations around them, the very thing that God had warned them not to do in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Don't go after the gods of the world. He says, I'm jealous for you. You're mine. I have something good for you. And that's why I chose you. As the story goes on, uh, Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, becomes king. Uh, the, the guy, the, the leadership comes to Rehoboam and says, uh, we need some tax relief. Jeroboam is leading this tax relief appeal. Rehoboam listens to the wrong counselors and says, my little pinky is going to be heavier on you than, my fa- than all that my father did. In other words, expect more taxes. And so the kingdom splits between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Jeroboam takes ten tribes north. Rehoboam takes two two and a half tribes south. And Jeroboam realizes something. Jeroboam realizes that if the people up north keep going down to Jerusalem, which is in the south, if they keep going down to worship God, their hearts are going to be turned and they're going to want to return and join the nation together. And so he puts two faults altars places of sacrifice and worship to god one just north of the southern nation's border and one in the north so that now you have two places to go to fulfill your sacrifices get it to jehovah he's not worshiping other gods he's changing and distorting the worship of jehovah the worship of god And so idolatry has now taken the form of what we call syncretism or blending of false religion with the religion and the teaching of the Scripture. Now, all this is happening way before Jonah's time. But God is clear that He made a covenant with Israel that He loves them not because of anything unique to them. He tells them in Deuteronomy 7, I chose you. Because I decided to set my love on you, not because you were special, not because you were bigger or stronger or richer. I chose you. I didn't find something in you that I loved. I loved you and made you something lovely. This is grace. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7. And you see God reaffirming his promises to them and his purpose. I've done this so that you'll be mine and I'll be yours and so that the nations will know. And you see this in the story of Elisha. Remember the story of Elisha and a guy named Nahum? Naaman? Naaman? This is a Syrian general or, or warrior who comes down with leprosy and comes to Elisha. The Syrians at that time were destroying and, and warring against Israel. And here comes their captain or their, 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 their leader and Elisha heals him because Elisha gets it. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for others. We're here for God and others. 
And so Jonah should have known, the people should have known, they've seen God walk other people into His grace and into His kindness, but Israel is steeped in idolatry and all kinds of distortions have come in. Even in Jonah's time, the great kings would come in and they would clean house, some of them, but they never removed the idolatry that was in Israel, and Israel persisted in this distortion. What's happening in the text, I think, is really critical. What God is, in essence, doing is putting himself amongst the other gods. And I think that's why we can say he's addressing the idolatry. Listen to the captain's words again. So the captains say to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise and call out to your deity, little g. Now, anybody in Israel who would read that would be offended. Israelites wouldn't even write the name Yahweh. So to put God, the living, true, immortal God, the one who created all things, to put Him on that level would be blasphemous. And it would have elicited a reaction. But it doesn't. Jonah doesn't freak out. Jonah goes along with it. Jonah doesn't say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to call out to my deity. I'm going to call out to the living God. In fact, it's not until later in the story where the captain presses him and says, who are you? And he says, all right, I admit I'm the prophet of the living God, the one who created all things. His name is Yahweh. And then everyone gets real serious real fast. So what the text is doing is it's putting God on the same level as the other pagan deities, and then it's asking this question, maybe your God will save you. And I think this is the question that God is asking Israel. You're worshiping all these pagan deities? All this idolatry has flooded into the land through Solomon and through all the other kings, and no one has had the gumption to destroy the 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 places of sacrifice, what are called the high places. No one has saw that as a problem. You're treating me, this is God speaking, just like all the other deities. Maybe they'll save you. Israel knows better. When the Syrians had come in and Elisha had healed Naaman and the Syrians had, the Syrians had come in, they had besieged uh, Jerusalem, and, and they didn't have to lift a finger. The day came when the siege lifted and God had sent them back and they walked out and plundered the Assyrian camp. They knew that God could deliver them. They had seen it over and over and over. And now God is forcing them to say, to, to see, you're treating me like all the other gods. And that's not who I am. And you know that. 
So God places himself on the level of other deities in the story to confront the idolatry. And then when the captain says, Jonah, arise, call out, it's as if God is speaking to him again through this non-believing captain. Whoever or whatever we worship, the fundamental goal, and this is where idolatry kind of hits its heartbeat, the fundamental goal is to achieve what we imagine is best for us. We choose the God that will help us satisfy the desires of our main deity, which is self. And so what Israel has done is, is what Paul says in Romans 1, they have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the corruptible They have exchanged the glory of God for these pagan deities. They have have lost their affection for God. Or what what Israel has done is said, yeah, God's the the primary deity, but we're going to worship some of the other ones and try and twist their arms too. Try and manipulate them because that's what idolatry fundamentally is. It's this... What, who do I need to appease? Who do I, do I need to appeal to to get what's best for me? To get what will satisfy me, what will give me the life that I believe I need and deserve. Idolatry is a distortion, but I really want you to see that idolatry reveals that there's already distortion at play. There's already a distortion, the distortion of how we think of ourselves and the distortion of how we think about God. Solomon loved many wives. Solomon allowed his own heart to be turned. What was the distortion in Solomon's life? How did he view himself in relationship with God? Did he think that God overlooked his disobedience? Do you think that Solomon's distortion was that that God is still my supreme God and I love him, but I'm going to love some other deities? That God isn't exclusive? That he can be spiritually polyamorous? What was Jeroboam's uh, uh, distortion about himself? You see that that Jeroboam believes that his own power is the key to his future and his economic future and the economic future of the people over Jeroboam, which was God's appointed king through the line of David. Was Was Jeroboam primarily a people pleaser? Give the people what they want and they'll put you in power? These are the kind of actions that he has. These are the kind of things that he's doing. What was Jonah's distortion about himself as he ran from God and refused to extend God's grace and kindness to the Ninevites? Was, did Jonah see himself as an agent of God instead of an instrument? As though God and I are partners, and when I don't like what God wants to do, I can say no to it. After all, I'm a free agent, and I'll, I'll serve God as long as He gives me what I want, as long as He does the things that I think are right after all? What's the primary God of idolatry? The primary deity is self. And so I'll, 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 I'll serve you as long as I get from you. As though somehow 
I have that kind of authority, that kind of standing with God that I could manipulate God or control God or, or twist God's arm to get what I want. Does Jonah fundamentally believe God isn't enough? That God's will isn't in his best interest? All this goes to the root of idolatry in Genesis chapter 2 when the serpent, Satan, tempts Adam and Eve and he says, eat the fruit and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And it's not just the distinction of good from evil that, that Adam and Eve are promised, but the ability to judge good and evil and to judge what is best and to make decisions The root of it is this independence from God. Instead of image bearers, as Packer says, we become image users. Instead of image bearers, dependent on God, living in submission to God, trusting in the wisdom of God, we become image users. And we think we are like God. And so we make judgments about what's best for our lives And we'll do whatever we got to do to appease the right person to get what we want. And we do all that without the wisdom of omniscience. What What a destructive path. So Jonah's distortion is the same as all of our distortions. I know what's best. I can discern between good and evil. And yet we all have the same weakness of the lack of the wisdom that comes from omniscience, from immortality, from eternality, and all the glories that belong to God. A distorted view of self places me at the center of my world, convinced that I know what's best for me and the wonderful plan that I have for me. It's me saying I have a wonderful plan for my life and I know exactly what I need to get it. But There's a distortion about God as well and it's that God can be appeased, manipulated into helping me achieve that plan. God came and chose us by His grace to be His children, determined to purify us as for His own possession and I love how, uh, how Moses, in speaking for the Lord, says this. He talks about fleeing the idols of the nations in Deuteronomy 6. And then he says, uh, when, your children come, when, when, you're, when you raise your children and you teach them the rules and the commandments and the ceremonies, they're going to ask you, why are we doing this? And this is what you tell them. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. For our good always. Our distortion about God is that fundamentally we can, we can appease Him, we can manipulate Him, and that He does not have good at heart. As though somehow God is like all the other pagan deities and He needs our worship. 
we have something that he needs, we have something that he wants, we have something that he can't live without. And that enters us into this quid pro quo, this give and take relationship that is so common in the culture today. Well, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Look what I've done for God. Can you imagine how, how Jonah would have thought? I mean, you see it come out. You see it in his anger in chapter 4, the self-pity that has grasped this man's heart as he recounts all that he has done for God, being a faithful prophet, probably studying under the school of Elisha, and now he's been serving God faithfully in Israel, in this pagan nation. And what he gave up to be in the ministry and the risks he took to say what he said and do what he did for God. And now you've asked me to do something I'm unwilling to do. I would do anything. This is a meatloaf moment. I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. His heart is filled with anger, fueled by self-pity for all that he sacrificed to God. And now God is asking him to do the one thing that is not in his plan. And Jonah has a wonderful plan for his life. Is it a distortion that God and I are partners? That I am his agent, not his instrument, which flows out of a self-righteousness and a misunderstanding of who we are. We worship our creator. We are dependent beings. We are in need of his revolutionary goodness and grace to transform us. And anything good that comes out of my life is a work of his goodness and grace. We do not believe that God finds something good in me and that's why he has engaged me. He is engaged with me. No, it is because he is gracious and merciful. And that we know the name of God and we worship him should blow our minds. It should so surprise us that God would call us to himself and more than that, that God would send his son to rescue us and as we said earlier in the service, to reconcile us to himself. But Jonah is filled with self-pity. He is unable to see the needs around him. Think about that. The sailors are are afraid they're going to die, and Jonah is sound asleep. They don't even know his name. You're going to find that out in the next section. They don't know who he worships. They don't know necessarily what he's done. He's about to tell them. He doesn't see their needs. But you know what we don't have any record of? We don't have any record of Jonah addressing the sin of Israel. We don't have any record of Jonah speaking out about the high places in Dan and Bethlehem. Why not, Jonah? How did Jonah excuse the idolatry of God's people? Jonah's only prophecy recorded in the, New Te- in, the, in the Old Testament is that he told the king that God would not destroy them for their idolatry and that they could retake the land that Assyria had taken. God had been beaten up on Assyria for a while economically, 
Um, there, was, there was famine. There was uh, natural disasters that had weakened Assyria. And that's why you see the word Nineveh, that great city, and the king of Nineveh. These are, this is probably language that the empire had been pretty beaten up and divided. And so Jonah's only prophecy is about God extending his goodness and expanding the territory, reclaiming what was theirs. But no mention of, oh, and by the way, the idolatry in the land is wrong. Jonah was so blind by his own distortions about himself and God that he couldn't see the needs around him, even the needs of his own people. A distorted view of God fundamentally is that God can be appeased, manipulated to help me achieve the life that I want. Jonah was, was absorbed with himself and his people. His anger and his self-pity blinded him to the spiritual needs of others, the sailors, Nineveh, and primarily his own people. God's gracious storms call us to evaluate these distortions. Because it's written this way, because of the way this is presented, that God is instigating this reclamation of his prophet, we know the storm was intentional. We know the storm was to get Jonah's attention and to get Israel's attention and ask them fundamental questions about their view of themselves and their view of God. And this is God's mercy. God had storms for Israel. Israel had been waging war for generations. Losing some, gaining some always having to fight to protect their fields and their cattle. And so God sent the Assyrians to wake them up. These are what storms do. They are not always because we've done something wrong, but they are always times when God wants to grow us in our faith. Assyria had storms. God had been undermining their power for a long time. Jonah had storms in his life. The biggest one was the call to go and preach the grace of God to the Ninevites. That rocked his world more than the storm on the boat. But now he's facing this storm. The church has storms. You have storms. Storms are not bad. We know from Romans 8 that God causes everything to work to accomplish his purpose, right? The purpose of God is to conform us to the image of Christ. And so God can take all things and turn them into purpose-accomplishing events. That's what that text teaches. So that at the end of the day, one person will be firstborn among many brethren. One person will be preeminent. That's Jesus Christ. Oh, wait, don't you, don't you just, you, you, I don't know about you, I read that, and it's just like, by the way, God's going to cause all things to work out together for good for you. Yes, Lord, thank you. According to my purpose, hey, wait a minute, what's your purpose? Is to conform you to the image of Christ. Oh, I think I can go along with that. You know, I want to be more like Jesus. He's, he's, he's humble, he's loving, he's, and, and then God just says, and, be, and, and it's not even about you, it's all about me exalting my son. I mean, guys, the gospel just takes self right out of it. It just takes, it leaves no oxygen for self. 
it leaves no room for us to say, yeah, but Jesus is all about me. Jesus loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. It's to conform you to his likeness, and he's going to do whatever it takes in all his wisdom and gentle care to get you there. God has established it that way so that Christ can be glorified. The gospel just sucks the oxygen of self right out of the room. Keller says of this section, the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of our sin, but it does teach us that for Christians, every difficulty can help reduce the power of sin over our hearts. Storms can wake us up to the truths we would otherwise never see. Storms can develop faith, hope, love, patience, humility, and self-control in us that nothing else can. Questions for you to consider as you go home today. Number one, how can you live distortion-free? Idolatry reveals distortions already exist. How can you live distortion-free? You can't. Let me just tell you, you can't. This is, this is what the Scripture teaches us. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know them? This is why there's always this contrast in Scripture between us and God. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who can understand His ways? Who has ever given to God that he should repay? There's always going to be. And I, until we get to glory, until the end, as our, as our brother said, when the, when the ball start, stops bouncing, okay, until the end where we step into eternity, we're always going to be, we're always going to have these distortions about who we are and who God is. And that affects our relationships. That affects everything we do. So you can't live distortion-free. And I think that's, that's one of the humbling things about the gospel. It just says you're not going to live distortion-free. Just own it. And now get serious. <laughs> now get committed to saying to God, I need you to cleanse me of my distortions. I need you. I'm ready. I want to be like Jesus. Point them out. I'm going to be in your word reading. I'm going to be praying. I am looking for you, as we prayed earlier, to purify my affections. You have a besetting sin. Let me tell you, God's not going to zap you and get you over that. You have a besetting sin. God is going to take you down a path of changing your affections so that over time you will come to the place where you see that thing, that lure that used to elicit all kinds of desire on your part, and you can actually say, I don't want that anymore. My heart actually doesn't want that anymore. But don't think you can live distortion-free. That's pride and arrogance. That's, the, that's self-righteousness. You have distortions. Now, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. He will give you grace. How is... God, um, and I think this is one you just have to sit with the Lord on. God, how are you addressing my identity distortions? Help me see where I think about myself. And guys, some of these are so culturally ingrained in us. I mean, we have grown up in independent America. 
And we are so culturally ingrained to be agents, not instruments. We, we see a separation between us and our Creator that's kind of fundamental to how we think. How is God addressing those distortions in your life? Maybe you need to wake up and say, man, maybe God's trying to get my attention through some of this hardship. <laughs> Don't think pandemics aren't outside his purview. I mean, some of the panic and the hysteria really reveals what we're trusting in as Americans when it comes to our health, when it comes to our security, when it comes to our futures. I'm using Germex like crazy. Okay, I won't get sick, but what is God addressing in these storms that we face? Keller brings this out. I think this is a good question. The sailors are critical of Jonah. I think it's a good question to ask, how would the world view us? Are we so blind by our distortions about who God is and who we are that we can't see the needs around us? You know, God's called each of us to love each other, to admonish each other and encourage each other. But when we're, so, but when we're idolatrous and we, we're wrapped up in who we are and our distortions, we can't see the needs around us. How would the church evaluate, how would the world evaluate our church's compassion, our church's being on mission? Or have we, have we like Jeroboam said, the gods of power politically are more important to us than the living God? We have to be in power in order to be secure. How is Jesus better than Jonah? I think this is a great question to ask. Jesus is the one who comes and gives his life for others. Jesus is the only one who God's, who the Father said of him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Jesus is such a better Jonah, leaving his heavenly courts to come and give his life in obedience and sacrifice for us. Jesus, Jesus is the pure prophet of God, and we worship him and rejoice in him. So if God is setting the stage and putting himself in the same mix as all the other deities, you would expect in the next section that he is going to, he is going to shine the light on who he is. And I'd encourage you to read the next section because this is the question. Who is the Lord? Let me pray for us. Father, thank